would send forth your word, that you would, in this time of study and prayer and um, searching into your scriptures, your holy word, we ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us your truth. Um, We ask that you would allow your word to accomplish its purposes, your purposes in our lives. And we ask that, above all else, you would reveal to us your eternal word, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that through studying your word, we would draw near to him in faith. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. Amen. So um, remember we are in chapter 8 um, uh, in, of um, John's gospel, and we, we've taken, you know, there's been a little bit back and forth in the, in the last month, especially with um, travels that I had for, um, for missionary work in Nicaragua, which was wonderful, and we had the spring coffee and all of that. We looked at, um, we kind of did a little bit of a review last week, remember, remembering what we had looked at in chapter 7 and chapter 8, chapter, the first part of chapter 8. Remember that there's that interlude from verses 53 in chapter 7 through verse 11 in chapter 8 that's set off in brackets in your Bible. And that's, that kind of disrupted a little bit the flow of what we were looking at. Remember what happens in, at the beginning of chapter 7? Jesus has been in Galilee, and he returns again to Jerusalem. He was last in Jerusalem. Do you remember when he was last in Jerusalem? It was a couple chapters ahead. Was anyone? That's where we are now. He was a couple, he was earlier there. Remember in chapter 5, do you remember what happened in chapter 5? It was before the feeding of the 5,000, which happened in the north, in Galilee. So he had been in Jerusalem. He went to the north and there fed the 5,000 by the Sea of Galilee. Then came back down at the beginning of chapter 7. So chapter 5, he was last in Jerusalem. In chapter 5, he healed someone on the Sabbath. Remember, and yeah, it was that was even before I got here that you were in chapter five. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Chapter four pages ago. I know, I know. We've been going at a snail's pace four pages ago. Um, but yes, chapter five, and remember, at the, um, in those verses in verse 18 and 19, we see that um, there was already an attempt on Jesus's life. People. The religious authorities are very unhappy with his teaching, very unhappy with some of his claims, which seem outrageous to them. They're very unhappy also with um, the way he heals on the Sabbath. And that's what happened in chapter 5. He healed a man, remember, on the Sabbath who had been paralyzed and was lying by the pool, the Bethesda pool. And so Jesus heals him, and then the man... um, and then Jesus gets in trouble with the authorities for healing him. So remember that that's sort of the backdrop behind chapter 8. Then a little closer to the events of chapter 8, we see that in, at the beginning of chapter 7, if you flip back, remember the very beginning of chapter 7, it's announced. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember this Feast of Booths. This is the other name for this feast. And this is one of those feasts where all faithful Jews around the Mediterranean basin would travel down to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. So Jesus and his brothers, his brothers are instigating him and saying, well, if you really say you're the Messiah, go to Jerusalem and do all these wonderful miracles publicly so people will know and follow you and you'll have a big following and you'll be on the big public stage um, for Israel. And um, Jesus, remember what happens? What does he do with his brothers? What does he say to them when they try to get him to go to Jerusalem on their timeline? 
not my time. It's not time. Not time to <coughs> die, even. He is thinking we're in John. That time is the hour of Jesus' death. Um, and he knows that that will come in God's timing, and it's not yet the right time. Um, but then he, so it seems like he contradicts himself, but then he goes down anyway, just showing it's in his own time, in his own way, that he'll act. He can't be, Jesus cannot be manipulated. And then, remember, we go through, as we finish through the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8, we see Jesus teaching and the people in Jerusalem responding. Some are believing some are challenged by what he says and push him. There's a lot of pushback that Jesus receives from them. Um, and there's a lot of back and forth. It's not like big monologue, as we say in the theater, where you just have all, it would, if it was a monologue of Jesus, you'd have all red. In my red, red letter Bible, you have red and black, red and black, red and black. It's calling, responsing. Jesus saying something that points to his identity, that has theological import, and then they're trying to d- grapple with it. Um, does anybody remember some of the themes that we find in Jesus' teaching in chapter 7 and so far in chapter 8? I would say there are two brackets. I'm thinking first of themes in Jesus' teaching that have to do specifically with the theological context of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then there are other things that just keep coming up. Um, and any ideas if you want to just call them out I might add them up here some of them are already up here so these are the ones that we'll deal with in our passage that I put on the board uh, let's start first with the Feast of Tabernacles do you remember images that Jesus then uses to make theological statements images that were important to the people of Israel because of their wandering in the desert for those 40 years Well, there are images of, I'll give you hints, it's like the elements. There are images of light, water. Remember in 737 through 39, Jesus has that climactic statement where he cries out about the streams of living water um, that come from him and that come out of the hearts of of believers in Jesus. There's also, even at the beginning of our passage from last week, in, in, in verse eight of chapter or verse 12 of chapter eight, there's that image of light as well. And the light was important during the feast. They lit these big menorahs. Remember menorahs from Hanukkah, giant lamps. They're like the lampstands in the temple. They lit these lights, these um, torches to remind them of the pillar of fire that God sent to guide them while they were in the desert at night. Remember that they followed the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night um, to know where the Lord wanted them to go. And so there's that sense of God's light leading and guiding the people of God. And you see that when Jesus says, and we talked a little bit about light last week and the week before, Holy Week, looking at Jesus as the light of the world. And what does that mean within the context of all of Scripture, where light and darkness are both under God's authority, but light is very distinctively used to describe God. He dwells in inapproachable light, and light is sort of like shorthand, an image that so aptly or as aptly as possible for us finite mortals describes his holiness, his majesty, his ultimate goodness 
his purity of goodness in contrast to the darkness of sin and um, the fallenness within creation itself. So those images, water, light, um, featured prominently in both chapter 7 and chapter 8. Do you remember anything else from our previous studies, just things that Jesus is saying that come up when he's teaching? There's no, there, are, there are lots of right answers, so you can always take a stab at it. <laughs> How about that? I'm like, there are no right answers. Well, there are things that are definitely in there and things that are definitely not. But um, the I am there, there are, there is an I am statement, and they will see another one today. Mm-hmm. I get all excited about the I am statements. And that's all throughout John. You get to see all these I am statements. And Jesus makes, again, they're not just... They're theological statements about Jesus being God himself, and then also images that help us theolog- that help us materially um, understand how Jesus is God and how Jesus is um, our, mis- our Lord, you know, the good shepherd. We'll look at that in chapter 10. The light of the world, um, the bread of life was an early one in chapter 6. All of those are helpful. Yeah, thank you. Um, and even more specifically within chapter 7 and chapter 8, I don't know if you remember this, but there was this continual back and forth between Jesus and the people about, well, what kind of authority does he, uh, wh- why does he speak with such authority? Where does he come from? Where does he get this authority if he didn't go to rabbi school, if he didn't go to what they thought of as seminary or even to college? Well, his authority, and he continually says that his authority comes from God himself. He goes directly to the source because he has a unique and special relationship with God the Father, one of being equals, being both God, and um, one of intimacy and love, being the son of the Father. And you see that um, they, they, they're trying to wrap their minds about this around this, and they're continually offended by it, essentially. And Jesus is saying, remember that he's saying he is sent. They keep asking him who he is. Well, he's sent from God. That's, he's sent. He's the apostle from God. Remember that apostle, that word that we have in English, comes from the Greek word for sending out. And that's the word that Jesus then uses to describe those disciples that he sends out. That's how we have the 12 apostles are the ones who are sent out. Well, Jesus is sent out from God the Father. He's like the apostle from the Father. There's also um, talk of judgment, talk of truth, and that talk of truth we'll see more and more throughout the gospel. We'll see it in our passage for today, and we'll see it later on. You'll also see that there's this big, big question, and this will come up today significantly, about Jesus's origin and his destiny. Where is Jesus from and where is Jesus going? And they'll say they're contradicting themselves. The crowd says earlier on in in chapter 7, they say, um, let's see, um, can it be that this is the Christ? Um, And they say, oh, no, no, no. Um, When the Christ comes, um, we won't know where he comes from, but we know where this man comes from. That's in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 7. We know where this man comes from, and when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he comes from. But then if you look over, it's handy in my Bible. They're right in the same, next to each other in different columns. In verse 41, others say, this is the Christ. Some say, no, that's the prophet. Some say, no, the Christ is to come from Galilee. 
wait a second, we're not going to know where he comes from. Then we're going to know that he doesn't come from Galilee, for sure. It's almost like they're finding reasons not to believe in Jesus. Um, isn't it funny how we rationalize what we really want? They, they, there is a sense of opposition here to Jesus' teaching, and they're finding reasons for, for um, disbelieving. All of that to say that all throughout, there are some who do indeed believe. And we saw that at the very end of um, verse 30 in, in chapter 8, at the end of our passage from last week. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believe in him. And this is where we're going to pick up for today in verse 31. So you see there's ongoing conflict. Jesus is saying one thing, trying to get them to incline forward and really believe in him and not just believe in what he's saying but to put their whole trust in him and to follow him as their savior and their lord and it happens with some people but what we'll see is that others in the crowd don't believe and for those who don't believe in Jesus there is this mounting opposition and eventually um, uh, they're going to try to kill him right here in this passage. Remember, we've been hearing all along, oh, people are trying to kill him. People are trying to arrest him. The authorities are trying to get rid of him because they believe he's preaching heresy. And they think that one of their rules is to stamp out heresy before people who don't have discernment believe it and fall away into worshiping a God that is no God at all to um, stop worshiping Yahweh because they're tempted to believe someone who is not speaking the truth. That's what they believe about Jesus' teaching. And it's tragic to see this um, pursuing of persecuting Jesus up to the point where at the end of our chapter we'll see they actually try to stone him at the end of chapter 8. So any questions about that, about all that's gone on in chapter 7 and beforehand leading up to what we're looking at right now in chapter 8, verse, verse 31? Okay. Well, we're, uh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to read the whole thing. We're going to read beginning, I know, heads popped up. Oh, no, that's long. Um, I don't know if that's what you're thinking or not. But we'll start at verse 31. And if someone feels like reading, just read until, read a few verses and then let someone else pick up. And we're going to start in verse 31 and we're going to go to verse um, 59. And what I'm going to do I'm gonna, you see, I put all these themes up here. Just because we have this whiteboard, we might as well use it. I know, if we have the seats the way they are, we might as well. So um, we're going to see themes of truth versus falsehood, freedom versus slavery, and falsehood lying. You'll see. What I'm going to do, I'm going to put little hash marks whenever I see this theme pop up. And if I miss one, just... People are very bad at interrupting here in the South. Maybe I'm really bad at uh, not interrupting, and it's probably a, uh, it's a cultural difference, and I apologize for it, because I don't even know that I'm doing it until I've done it, and then I'm like, oops, that was wrong. Um, but in this setting right now, shall we say, if I miss something and you see, oh, that's the theme of truth, um, that, that is being, we hear it in the, way the, in the, in the gospel, we see it being read, um, and we see it in our Bibles, just call it out because I'm going to have my back turned. I'm going to be putting down hash marks every time we hear it. Um, so if I miss something, you're going to have to let me know. And um, so truth, falsehood, freedom versus slavery. We're also going to see questions about Jesus' parentage. 
who's Jesus' father, and who is the father of the, the Jews? And remember, the term in John, the Jews, is almost like, it's not a technical term, it's not an ethnic term. What he's using this term for is to identify those religious authorities within Jerusalem, within the, the Hebrew people, that were specifically opposed to Jesus, that rejected Jesus. So, um, and there's discussion of their origin. Who is their father? Who is their parent? Um, who do they take after? Who do they resemble? And the same thing about Jesus. And of course, Abraham, Father Abraham, will come up a lot. So, um, and then there's also some talk of glory and glorifying. And if you think of another scene that should be up there, we'll talk about it afterwards. Okay, so who would like to start, start us off in verse 31 and just go ahead and read? Great, thank you. Do you see how many hash marks I have up there right now? You're putting me to work. It's good. Did I miss anything? Okay. You look like you might. What do you think, Kay? No, I was just going to read the next one. Oh, go. Go for it. Read the next one. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. I added a couple. Can you see that? Do you think one more parentage? Which one? Jesus' parentage or the Jews? Well, either. Both. Both. You don't belong to God. Yep, yep, yep. You're right. Thank you. Belong to, came from, belong to. Out of wedlock. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Well, Mine says illegitimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're, we're going to talk about that. It's very interesting. They're taunting him. That's why I put that one down as Jesus' parentage. Kay, what Bible is yours? Oh, NIV study Bible. NIV, yeah. What was the, there was a verse that was very interestingly translated. I, I don't remember what it was. Yes, just now. Let's see, what verse, verses did you read? Because I'm, I'm listening. Right. Oh, it was um, about the devil and verse 45, or 44. Can you read the second half of verse 44? When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Yeah, that's right. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Mine says speaks out of his character, but I, I love hearing native language. That's so interesting. He speaks his native language. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> okay, um, who wants to pick up next? I think so. Yeah. The Jews answered him, Are we not white in saying that you are a Samaritan? And have a demon? Jesus answered, I have not a demon, but I honor my father, and you are you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. 
there is one who seeks it, and he will be the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say that he is your God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I said I do not know him, I should be a liar, like you. But I do not know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Sure, sure. (coughs) The Jews then said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What's really interesting? I know. Isn't it fascinating? What's interesting about it? Isn't it amazing? You know, like, and they, and he hid, and he left. Yeah. He hid and he left. I love that because I don't, and you know, I don't think Jesus hid like this, like behind a pillar. (laughs) I just don't picture Jesus doing that. I kind of picture him just walking out and they can't do it. He doesn't, Jesus is not a slinker. Pretty much see him, you know, he's just there. And I think God is hiding him from them, almost like those elven cloaks in The Lord of the Rings, which is obviously one of my favorite stories because I reference it so much. Um, but, you know, in, in that story, there are these travelers, and they're given these magical cloaks. And whenever there's trouble, and they're really small, the travelers are hobbits, they're petite, super petite, and so they really can't fight anyone and win. And so these magic cloaks just cloak them. And they become almost invisible, and no one—they camouflage them. Yeah, and I think of that with Jesus. Jesus is just camouflaged, not that—not because he's weak, because it's just not—it's not the right time yet. It's not the time. Um, so, any questions about that? What do you notice about this? Uh, I let's see. I'm bad at hash marks. Uh, this is something I just encourage you to do on your own, as you're studying scripture, if you see words repeated a lot and you think, he's talking about that a lot, and especially in John, because I think of John as being almost like um, Mozart, and I'm not, a, I'm not musical, and I keep saying this to Fred Tejardo, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I haven't been trained musically, but I have heard that Mozart, the way music, complicated classical music is composed is that there's a theme that's put out, and then other stuff is played, and there might be another theme, and then that original theme is brought back, but it might be brought back with another a n- new piece, of, a new sound, or a new um, key, or a new bit of information, but it's repeated all the way throughout the piece. And what you'll see in John's Gospel is that there are these themes all the way throughout the piece that John, the artist, the author of the story, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so God is also the author, is remembering Jesus' words and his actions and he's stringing them along, just like sewing. It's like he's picking up every third stitch or something and saying, wow, 
truth was really an important part of what Jesus kept saying. He kept talking about the truth in reference to himself. He kept talking about freedom and lying. He, he talked about um, his origin and his parentage. Um, people didn't understand that and they wanted to know about um, where he was from because that would show them who he was. Or he talked about his glory and being glorified and the Father glorifying him. Um, as you can see in this passage, and it, once you add the whole gospel, not just one section of verses, it's, it's overwhelming because it's, it's a shade of, it's a masterpiece, just of complexity. And so this can be really helpful for seeing it visually, for marking it down, for looking at it and saying, oh, look at what's going on. Look at how many times they reference killing Jesus and then they actually try to. And I bet if we were looking at all of seven and eight, we would have several more hash marks here. Anything else you notice? Um, what gets a lot of hits? What doesn't get a lot of hits? Should he get devil? Yeah, I mean the devil. Yeah, I, because I think he kept referring to the devil as their father, and he started to do it obliquely, and then he got he said it more. You're right, Shirley. He, he did. Anything else we should have up there that we don't already have? Okay. Well. What does all this mean? <laughs> and who, first of all, who is he talking to? Well, Jesus is not. And when you look at verse 30 and then you look at verse 31, it's very confusing. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. And it appears as though all of this that follows, all of what we just read, is between Jesus and those who believe in him, those who are actually following him. And there's a very important difference in the Greek that doesn't come out in the English translations. That in verse 30, he is speaking to those who believed in him, believed on him. You could say believed, trusted in him would be an even better translation. Those who trusted in Jesus. Um, many trusted in Jesus because of what he was saying. Then... It's changed in verse 31. The use of the word believe is different. If you translated it literally, um, you would, it would be like, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. That's past tense. Who believe what he's saying, but there isn't that connotation of trust. That idea of, um, of putting your whole weight on Jesus. Of leaning back in that trust fall and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus very different to believe that he exists, believe that he is who he says he is, to, um, to have this outward, these outward trappings of faith and belief, but they don't stand the test. They don't stand the test of life, unfortunately, and that true faith is not just assenting and believing what Jesus says, but rather leaning back, and do you see me using my arms? Have you ever done one of those horrible trust fall things? I hate them. You know, they're like, oh, let's, let's, they do it, it's something that came about maybe 20 years ago. They started to realize that groups don't trust each other, of course not. Um, and so t in order to build trust, they would take them on these ropes courses and things like that. And it's a, it's a standard youth group thing, a standard camp thing, and I can't tell you how many times I've done it. You have to stand on the stump and put your arms in front of you and then fall back. And people are supposed to catch you? Your team is supposed to catch you? I hate it. It's horrible. I don't trust them at all. Probably. Oh, sure, absolutely. Well, one of the things about that is not everybody is trustworthy. Well, Jesus is completely trustworthy. 
and that idea of falling back and Jesus is going to catch us. That what Jesus says about himself and about the world is so true that we can literally fall backwards off of a stump and, and know that we're going to be caught by it. It will always catch us. He will always catch us because his truth is, um, is so true. His truth is true and it's worth relying on and not just assenting intellectually and saying, I believe that, but rather to, um, to take a dive, take a leap into the water. You might not know the depth, but the Lord knows the depth. Don't do that for real. But, um, but in, in, in kind of this analogy of faith, it's really taking a leap off the high board, not knowing how deep the water is, trusting in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Um, so there's a difference here. These are marginal disciples, marginally people that marginally like him, that think, hey, there's something to this guy, Jesus. I think what he's saying is right. But then as he begins to challenge them, and he's challenging them to fan into flame their faith. He's saying things. You see all these different tactics. I think this is like last week as well. He's using these different tactics to get that little tiny spark of faith that's there to fan into flame. He's like a little boy scout with a piece of wood, and he's, you know, let's, come on, come on, let's get a fire here. Let's get a fire going. There's a spark. Let's get a fire going. And he's, he's doing this in different ways, um, but he's, not, he's completely uncompromising in the truth about who he is and um, what his purpose in the world is for and what it means when um, we reject him and don't follow him. Um, so all of that to say, um, Jesus here is um, seeking to fan into flame this spark of faith that these marginal disciples have. And um, so he's enticing them. He says, if you abide in my word, he's saying, abide in my word, it's worth it. If you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This begins this whole discussion that could be dis- described as being an, uh, um, an argument, perhaps. So they answer him and they say, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Well, that's patently false. They've never been enslaved to anyone? Wait a minute. What was that about in Egypt then? <laughs> remember Egypt? How could you forget? That's like the Israelites in the desert, remember? Oh, the leeks and the pomegranates in Egypt. We, were, we had it good in Egypt. What, why have you brought us out here in the desert to die? What? It's just so perfect because it's so perfectly human nature. It's just such a good description of human nature. How's that for denial? We've never been enslaved to anyone. And one of the things that's so funny is they even described um, writings from the first century described Roman rule and Roman oppression as being ongoing slavery and that the, they believed that the Messiah would come and set them free from slavery, that kind of political oppression that they'd been under ever since the exile. Remember, they went into exile first, um, first the uh, northern kingdom into Assyria and then the southern kingdom into Babylon. And then they're brought back by the Persian Empire, but they're still under the Persian Emperor, under the overlords. Um, and then the Greeks and then the Romans they are serving all these masters. They're required to serve all these masters and send tribute. They're really not free to govern themselves as they would like to be governed. So um, um, how's that for denial? It's definitely a denial. Um, But Jesus is challenging them and he says, well, okay, so you think um, that they might be talking about spiritual freedom. We're spiritually free because we are Abraham's offspring. Um, Well, 
God has no grandchildren, as my parents are fond of saying. And so they're looking to their lineage and saying, well, we're, we're good people. We're free. We're free spiritually because of Abraham. So there could be both meetings, both the literal slavery and the spiritual slavery. Well, they are, um, again, when we look to our parentage, uh, it is not there that we find the basis for our relationship with Jesus. Uh, God has no grandchildren. There are only direct relationships with Jesus. We cannot rely on the laurels or the faithfulness of the parents that went ahead of us, uh, but only on our own. It's really our relationship with God through Jesus Christ that is most important, not where our parents worshipped or how long they worshipped there or um, how faithful they were to God. How is it, they ask him, that you say, you will become free? We're free already. And then Jesus um, qualifies this freedom and slavery, and he says, truly, truly. And again, did you see that I hash marked every time he said truly? In the Greek, it, it is truly, truly. It's amen, amen. Does that sound familiar? Amen, amen. Jesus. Amen, amen, I say to you. Yep, that's what we say at the end of our prayers. True, because we're saying, may it be so. Let it be so. Amen. Let it be so. He's saying, truly, truly. Whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, he is, it's his way of bracketing something off with exclamation points and saying, this is important. Truly, truly. Truly, truly. I say, and he does this twice in this passage. So just to keep your eye out for that. Truly, truly. I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The sin here that he's describing is singular, not plural. He's not talking about each sin that we commit. He's talking about human fallenness and the bondage of the will. I'm sure you've heard that term before. That we, without Jesus, without God, we are so, um, we do the things, as St. Paul says, that um, we do the things that we don't want to do. We find ourselves um, sinning um, through selfishness in thought, um, word, and deed, as we say in our liturgy. Um, And... I don't know about you, but often this character, I find it when I'll do something and I'll look back on it and think, did I do that? I can't believe I did that. Not, I know better than to do that. Or I can't believe I just said that to her. That was the worst thing. To, that was utterly the wrong thing to say. And it points to me, not to her. It's about me, not her. Or um, all of those things, that the repetitive patterns of our thoughts, you know, the tapes that play over and over again that you can't get out of on your own. You just say, I wish that one would just turn off. Um, that, that lie in my head or that worry, that fear that's just going around, circling around, circling around, and there it is. And I really don't want to be thinking that. It's not helping me. Um, those, the, that slavery to sin is where we are without Jesus. And sometimes we find that we are still there even with Jesus, that um, even though we believe in Jesus and we even trust in him, we find that sin is not completely gone until the end, until the end, until Jesus comes back. And so even then we struggle with sin, but there's freedom through faith in Jesus Christ because we know that even as we struggle with sin, we are not rejected by God. That as we repent and acknowledge and say, wow, I really wish I hadn't done that thing. I would really like to not do that thing again. Oh, Lord, will you help me not do that thing again in the future? Will you transform my heart so that that thing is no longer automatic in me? 
Will you completely transform me? That is where the freedom comes. The freedom comes through faith in Jesus Christ um, and the forgiveness that comes through his death for us. And I will say, too, that, that as Christians, because we know that Jesus has died and risen for us and that we are forgiven by God because of him, we then are free to come to him when we sin again. When we see our sin, and we, it's, it's a quicker acknowledgement time, hopefully. The denial is less thick in our lives. Um, but um, we're hopefully, as we make a habit and a practice of um, soberly examining our lives, we begin to see sooner where we've, where we've erred. And how, and how we can repent more quickly. So there is that freedom in it. And um, in, I've referenced not just um, verse 34, but also there are a couple of other references. Jesus is talking here about slavery to sin. Um, and in Galatians, Paul is talking about freedom from uh, the law, freedom from condemnation, essentially, that comes about through self-justification through the law. Um, and, and so though they're not the exact same thing, I encourage you to read those verses because they talk about how we as slaves to, um, to a scales kind of faith, you know, the kind of faith where we say, well, I, I did this that was against God's law, and then, I, well, I did this good thing, and so hopefully the good thing will outweigh the bad. That is the self-justification that says, well, hopefully I'll be, all my good will be counted against my bad and I'll still come out on top. You know, like balancing your checkbook. The debits, you know, the credits are going to outweigh the debits. Well, um, that is not at all how God approaches us. Because were it to be about our credits and debits, we would be, we would fail. Our debits would be greater than our credits, obviously. And so Jesus' own credit is given to us. Through, um, he, through his death and through his righteousness. His righteousness is counted for us. He is the son in the house of God. And I didn't put this on your sheet, but you could see another passage where Jesus is called the son in God's house. is found in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. I'm right there, so I'll read it. Um, Jesus, is, he, Jesus is being compared with Moses. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And I'm skipping down to five. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over all God's house as a son. And we are his house. The house is the house of the people of God. You see this in 1 Chronicles 17, where God talks about the household of Israel, and he talks about the king as his representative son over the house of Israel. So Jesus, the Messiah, is the son in the house of Israel. He's the son of God also by virtue of his very divinity, his nature, his divine nature. Um, but here he is seen as being greater than any of the servants in the household. And then not only than any of the servants, those prophets who've gone on before, but um, we who are enslaved to sin, um, he is completely other. He's free. He's a son. And he dwells in the house eternally. And as a son, his sonship is then imputed to us. 
And that's a little bit of what Paul talks about in Galatians, that um, we are adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. And so that measuring up, that credit-debit approach is no longer the approach. It's not the approach that God has towards us. We're treated as sons and daughters in the house because of Jesus' own sonship and his own obedience to the Father that took him right to the cross for us. And so we too were adopted into God's household. And that you'll see in Galatians 4, um, which I'll, um, I'll just read a little bit. So I'm reading at 4, um, 4, verse 4 in chapter 4 of Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So interesting, too. I would encourage you to go home and look at verses 21 through 31 of that chapter, talking about offspring of Hagar, the slave woman, and the offspring of Sarah. We're the offspring of Sarah, the wife, um, the the sons and daughters in Abraham's household. And then it, it culminates in this amazing verse at the beginning of chapter 5, which pertains also to John 8. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul there is urging the Galatians not to go back to that former system of credits and debits, but rather to trust that um, Jesus' credit has been given, put into our account. So we are no longer slaves. From now on, we are sons and we are free. And that freedom, that gift um, without attachment, that gift of love through Jesus Christ from God is what then sets our hearts free to love him freely in return, and in some measure to turn our back on sin without thinking about it. And very often in our sanctification, this life of faith lived out whereby um, sin gradually somehow goes away. We're, we're involved, and yet we don't have a say in it. We can't control it. This is what's so frustrating for people about sanctification. As we live out our faith, we might say, wow, I really wish that gossip would go away, and I'm going to bite my tongue, and it's not going to happen, and I'm going to really work at it. And it's still there. And that's not to say that we don't work at it and we don't bite our tongue, um, but it's to say that the work of that desire to say something about someone else, that, that desire disappears only through God's own work in our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's through his love just continually being given to us. So we don't really get to say, Lord, I'd really like that to be gone right now, because it's not always gone when we want it to be gone. So that's just sort of a little description about sanctification. I got off. But uh, all of that to say, Jesus is hinting at this life of faith and what is available through him, that freedom from sin that's available through him. And, um, and they miss it. It's very sad. They say, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. And yet, because they are seeking to kill Jesus, it shows that they don't believe he's from God. And he goes on later on in a few verses to say, if you were Abraham's sons, you would do what Abraham did, which was Abraham, remember in Genesis 15, he receives, um, or excuse me, Genesis 18, verse 2, Abraham receives messengers from God. 
And those messengers from God, um, he receives and welcomes and he obeys them enthusiastically. He listens to them, even though it's the strangest thing ever that they're telling him that he's going to have a son. And Sarah laughs. Um, But so he's saying, you are not like your father Abraham because you don't do what your father Abraham does. He's, but he's trying. He's trying to get them to incline more, to see that perhaps they might be wrong about this. Um, he's still there. He hasn't given up on them, has he? Even when they begin to taunt him. In verse 41, we were not born of sexual immorality. That's what my Bible says. Um, some of you have fornication in there. Some of you have uh, illegitimate. illegitimate. What is that about? I think they are indeed, and most commentators think they're alluding to Jesus' birth that, you know, word gets around, and uh, Mary, pregnant, um, it got around. And so they are hinting at this, and what they're doing, um, it's devolving. Can you see how this interaction is devolving? It's like, you know, um, nobody here knows about your mama jokes, I'm sure, and they're really jokes, but if someone insults your mother, or it's the worst thing in the world, isn't it? But, and... Kids today will joke about that as a way of, like, it's really a joke. But here it's not a joke. It's devolving. They're, they're um, taunting him about his parentage. They're resorting. Um, they, can't, they can't win in arguing theologically with him. And so now they're just taking, they're taking um, blows below the waist. You know, they're really fighting mean here and saying, well, we know that we're not born of sexual immorality, but you are is the underlying implication. We have one father. They know he's talking about spiritual parentage now, and so now they're claiming their fa- father is God. And Jesus just says, just says, well, if God was your father, you would love me and you would believe in me because I came from him. Your father is not God himself, but rather, and here is, here is the, here is, it's another, it's another pot parry. I mean, your father is the devil um, who is a liar and rejoices in falsehood. He, do, he hates the truth. Um, and he goes on, that's who your father is. Then they come back at him and they say, um, well, Jesus, there's another theme throughout. Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. This is a theme all throughout John. We're going to look at it next week in chapter, or in a couple weeks in chapter 10. Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. They are not from God. Their origin is not from God. And there's a sense in which because they don't know God, they don't recognize who Jesus is. And his word has no place in him, in them, as they say elsewhere. But then it goes on, um, rather than talking about more about who they are and where they're from, the whole passage culminates in who Jesus is and where Jesus is from. Remember all the discussion about freedom that we just had and that I just talked about. Well, who is it who can save us and set us free from sin? It is the Son in the household of God. It is the one who is of one nature with God himself, who is sinless, who is outside of humanity. Our sin is... um, is something that we cannot save ourselves from. We need an intervention from outside of us. In theater, we call it the deus ex machina. Have you ever heard of that in theater? In Shakespeare, it's in it's in one of his plays, Cymbeline, where in there it's a Greek pantheon of gods, and Jupiter comes in, and suddenly all of the conflicts are resolved. 
um, everything is made right, and the play ends. And all of the scholars, Shakespeare scholars, hate that play because they, they don't believe in God. And they say, well, so unrealistic, God just intervenes, and everything is all hunky-dory right after that. Well, as Christians, we believe in a God who intervenes. We believe in a God who, um, who we, we believe it's bad enough in creation that we need, some, we need help outside of ourselves and outside of the created order. We need the author of the story to enter into the narrative himself. We need God to be made as part of the creation in order to save us and redeem us from sin and from evil and from death. And that's what we have. And this is what Jesus is alluding to. Jesus is very clearly saying that he is God himself. And um, this is what is horrible. They hate this. They say, um, well, he's talking about Abraham. He says, your father, Abraham, I skipped down to verse 56. Okay, so your father is Abraham. Well, your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus is alluding here to this belief among the rabbis that when when God made the covenant with Abraham in verse uh, in chapter 15, that Abraham he gave Abraham a vision of the messianic age when the promise to Abraham in, in, would be fulfilled, when God's promises to Abraham would be fulfilled through Abraham's offspring, the Messiah. Jesus here is saying, well. I am Abraham's offspring. I am the Messiah. Abraham saw it and was glad. Abraham knows exactly who I am. And Abraham had a vision of this day, today, when I would be here, is what Jesus is saying. Um, and that's what they understand him saying. They're, and they say, I, people aren't clear what this means. You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? What does that mean? Why 50? Well, if you think about it, in that day and age, people did not live very long. So 50 was considered to be of elder elder age. You know, you would have grandchildren at 50 for sure. Uh, not for us today, obviously. You would have grandchildren at 50. At 50, you were venerable within the community. Certainly we know that culturally. But there might have been this expectation that upon reaching a venerable age, you then are a part of the patriarchs. You have entered into being a part of the, um, the his, you know, the those who are... Um, uh, looked at as leaders in the, in Israel historically. So that's the that's the closest we can get to knowing what what in the world they mean, right? But it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I always think of Jesus at I'm 33. It's my it's a good year for a crucifixion. No, 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 no. What's that? It's a good year just to be. It's good. It's it's a good year to follow Jesus. How about that? And but Jesus at 33 was not young but old. And there, I mean, if you think of people getting married at 15, and that's not that's that's much old. You could have grandchildren at 33. So um, then, of course, 50 is a venerable age. Um, yeah. Well, but haven't, yeah, haven't you had an argument or a dis- discussion, I'm sure it wasn't an argument, with someone who was um, seeking and wanting to know about Jesus and um, not, or not seeking and resistant to Jesus uh, and resistant to the Christian faith, and um, you'll find that the argument keeps shifting. You, you think you're talking about one thing, and then, oh, wait, and then they'll bring up something else, and you're like, well, we weren't talking about that, but that seems to be important and connected somehow for you. And then they'll bring up something else, and you think, well, that's, 
but it's like the argument keeps shifting. The discussion keeps shifting because they're not ready to believe. It's a spiritual issue, not an intellectual issue. They're not at a place of faith. And there's that evasion that, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, I just can't do that because of that reason. The end. They just want it to be over with. We're not talking about this. And this is what is happening with these people. They're saying in the crowd, they're saying, nope, you're not who you say you are. Nope, 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 here's why, nope. And they keep shifting. And Jesus keeps pursuing and trying to fan into flame the little bit of faith that had been there at the beginning of 30, at 31. Do you see that in what's going on? And there's a conflict created. And of course, the conflict, um, it, it escalates and it reaches its climax right here with Jesus's, they're saying, you're not 50 years old, or you're not important enough to have seen Abraham. And that, then Jesus, Jesus has been gradually trying to reveal the truth about his divinity, about the fact that he's the Messiah and a certain kind of Messiah, and that his purpose in the world is different than what people had expected the Messiah would do. And he just gives it to him right here. Again, truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham even existed, Jesus existed. He's saying he is pre-existent. He's saying he is God himself because there he uses, in the Greek, the ego eimi. He uses the divine name, which no, no pious Jew would ever say. He is saying that he is Yahweh. He is equivalent with Yahweh. He is the God who is. Remember Yahweh in, in Exodus, I am who I am. And it has this idea of past and future existence. God exists all throughout the past. He's eternal. All throughout in the present, he is. And he will be in the future when there is nothing else. He is eternal. And Jesus is claiming that he too is eternal right here. And if he, just like Lewis says, I put this on your um, sheet, this quote from Lewis, that Jesus must either be a lunatic and that's what they're alluding to when they say, Don't, aren't we right in saying that you have a demon? Aren't you a madman? Jesus would either be a lunatic or the son of God. He says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He does not leave that op option open to them. He is claiming divinity right here. And they respond in the way that, um, that someone who didn't believe what Jesus was saying, who was also a faithful religious Jew, would respond. With that strict monotheism, they are commanded in Deuteronomy 13 to stone for, or not just 13, but all throughout Deuteronomy, stone for blasphemer. The blasphemer must be cut off from the people of Israel. And so there's this idea in which stoning cuts off the heresy before it spreads like a plague among the people. And so that is why on the moment they pick up stones, because they don't believe. Either he's a madman, or he's God and Lord. And we know we believe that he is God and Lord. Yes, Liz. Yeah. 
Yes. But you wonder, though, because it said many believed, so obviously the Holy Spirit was at work in their question. I know. There's the, this is this is a, the age-old argument of of election. Are we chosen by God to hear His voice so that we can respond? <coughs> Or is there some inclination our, on our part to hear and respond? And we don't know the answer to that. It comes about, you know, we'll know the answer when we see Jesus face to face. But we know that it's a mystery, that it is a mystery of this back and forth. And my goal in everything, especially when I see this as a person of faith, when I see this in family members or friends who do not believe in Jesus, I pray for them. I pray that they would have the ears to hear. And we see here that these these people hearing Jesus did not have the ears to hear and believe in him. But they couldn't. I mean, like you said last week. Right, they couldn't. Well, what, I mean, who would have the nerve to think that way and follow him? Yeah. Because they would probably be stunned. Right, it's true. It would take a lot of nerve. And we're actually, okay, we're going to see that in the next chapter with the man who was born blind, who Jesus will heal. So I encourage you, I encourage you to look at um, what... What's going on? Um, we're going to start looking at chapter 9 next week. Do you think it really means blind or blind to the word and blind Jesus? In blind. chapter 9? <laughs> oh, he was blind, blind. Okay. Jesus, physical. 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 Oh, he was you know, blind. Kind of oh, no, he was, we'll talk. We'll talk <laughs> next week. That, I'll leave you something to go with. Let's pray before we leave. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for um, your graciousness to us in our um, in our wavering faith at times that is wavering, when we um, don't know what to think about you, when we um, forget to put our trust in you, when we revert back to our old ways. And we ask, Lord, that you would have patience with us. And we ask, Lord, that you would have patience with those in our lives who definitely don't know you. And we turn them over to you and we ask, Lord, give them the ears to hear your voice. Give them hearts that are ready and willing to believe and put their whole trust in you. And of course, we ask the same for us. We ask all of this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.